do me a favor and uh, grab a Bible if you've got one and get with me in Numbers chapter 14. Quick update on the facility stuff. We are marching forward and uh, this week, Lord willing, we'll close on the new property and I would love prayer as we um, consider timelines and uh, next steps, but God has been very kind throughout the entire process. So thank you guys for your generosity. Thank you guys for um, just giving so uh, incredibly toward the, the down payment and the uh, uh, initial projects that we'll take on right away. We surpassed our goals. We blew them out of the water and that was just another confirmation of God's goodness and all of it. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see what God does. Yeah, we can clap for that. He is faithful. Well, if you've got Numbers 14 in front of you, I'm going to kind of cast the story a little bit, tell the story, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. So it's a continuation from what we were talking about last week. The people of God are about to go into the promised land, but before they do, they send out scouts. They say, examine the land, look at the land, and bring back a report. And the scouts come back, and a majority of them say the land is just like God said, full of milk and honey. It's beautiful. It's uh, incredible, but there are giants in the land. Uh, they have fortified cities. They are powerful and formidable, and the land devours those who are living in it, and uh, we should not go. And two of them said, wait, wait, wait. God is faithful. God is good. The land is flowing with milk and honey. We should certainly go. Well, Numbers 14 is a continuation of that story. And the community then begins to grumble and complain to their leaders. And they are upset. In fact, they're saying, if only we had died in Egypt. In other places, they'll say, weren't there enough graves there for us? And instead, God is bringing us into this new location just to bury us there. And they're saying, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. But the Lord is bringing us into this land only to fall by sword. And they go on to say, and even our kids will be taken captive as plunder. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Well, Caleb, a person of faith, continues to emphasize that God is with us. And if he's calling us there, we certainly can go and the Lord will provide for us. But the community of unbelievers is saying, these guys have no idea what they're talking about. We should kill them. We should stone him to death. And then the Lord is provoked to anger and he interacts with Moses there and he says, Moses, essentially step away from this people. I'm going to destroy them. They're treating me with contempt, but I will make you into a great nation. We'll, we'll reboot this whole project. You will be at the center of it. And Moses says, I'm not interested in that plan, Lord. Would you please save this people, forgive this people? And he intercedes on behalf of the people with the Lord. He prays for them. And God says, I will do that. I will forgive them. But nonetheless, they will pay for the consequences of their rejection of me. And many of them will fall by the sword and fall in the desert wilderness. And Moses relays that information to the people. And they say, hold on, we don't like that plan either. Uh, so we're ready to go now and we'll go up and we'll fight. And Moses says, but the Lord is not with you in this. And they say, well, we're going to do it anyways. And they rush up and they fight against the the giants there in the hill country, and they are defeated. And so it's quite an awful story, but I think there's a lot in there for us. So let's pray, and we will get to work. Lord, we ask right now, as we have opened your word, we're asking that you would also open our hearts. 
that you, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, would speak. And that you would help your people, Lord. We want to be people of faith. So let us learn from this example and let us pursue your will and your ways in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have here uh, really a, a contrast between the way of unbelief, which is on display in the majority of the community, and the way of faith which is a minority, but it's Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron. And so we get to see these two things and they're very different from one another. So let's take them one at a time. The way of unbelief. The way of unbelief is to look at the world and to look at what God is calling the people to and to evaluate all of that and come to the conclusion, we can't do it. I know God is calling us in this direction. I know he's opening this way for us. I know that he has been very faithful previously, but this looks too hard. And therefore, the people who are walking in unbelief are rejecting the way of God. But here's the, here, here's the scary part then. If you're looking at this story, one of the things that I'm recognizing is it is possible then to be a part of the people of God and still view things through a lens of unbelief. I mean, we're talking about the Israelites here. We're talking about the literal people of God. We're talking about these individuals who would identify as, here's who we are. We are God's chosen people. They would self-acknowledge their identity as followers of God. They would take that on very readily. If you were to have a conversation with them, tell, tell me about yourself. And they would say, well, at the very core of who we are, our fundamental identity as the Israelites, we are God's chosen people. And I, I think at this point, they would all do that. Furthermore, they're engaged in significant spiritual practices. I mean, daily, they eat bread from heaven. They wake up in the morning, they open their tent and they look out and there's bread that has rained down on the ground and they eat bread from heaven. They're constantly doing things, participating in spiritual realities that would remind them over and over and over again. And in fact, their whole society is designed around that reality of there is a God and these are his people and they're supposed to relate to him. So they have all kinds of spiritual practices going on, all kinds of religious activity defining and, um, and being a part of their everyday experience. Furthermore, they've got a spiritual history. They're the ones who are able to say, we are the people of God. We engage in spiritual practices. And furthermore, we're a redeemed people. We were in slavery in Egypt and God came to our rescue. He redeemed us. He set us free from that bondage and that captivity. He liberated us from that experience. We saw God at work on our behalf. In fact, we plundered the Egyptians. God made them favorable to us and we took a lot of their their gear as we headed out. And, and then when the army was chasing us and we were, you know, in a pinch, we were between the Red Sea and the army, God opened the sea and we walked through on dry ground. And then God determined he was going to live in our camp. He gave us his very presence, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, and he leads us and we just do life with him. So here's the, the thing that I'm pointing at. It is possible to be a part of the people of God and still view things through a lens of unbelief. That's really, really troubling to me. And I think that many Christians nowadays are struggling with this reality that we can easily claim to be followers of God, but functionally speaking, we're looking at the world as it is right now and we're saying, I don't see how 
we could ever do what God wants us to do. I, I can't imagine how we are going to fulfill God's plan for us. Now that's, that's troubling to me. And then I was wondering, how can we determine whether or not we are living in unbelief? And, you know, I think a part of the problem is we're often self-deceived. We, we don't discern that we're living with a lack of faith. So how could we unearth whether or not we are living in unbelief? And here in our story, I see two different symptoms, two different things that are going on with the people that I think would be useful for us to really evaluate and go, do I do that? So here they are, catastrophic language, and secondly, hatred for those with whom you disagree. And I think those are symptoms of unbelief. So catastrophic language, when, when you look at the situation and you evaluate it, do you speak about it in catastrophic terms? Like worst case scenario, like I can't imagine how this is going to play out other than it going very, very poorly. Listen to how they talk about it. This is chapter 13, verse 32. This is their assessment of the land. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. So you look at the cir circumstances and you go, this is insurmountable. This place will devour us. There's no hope for us there. It's catastrophic language. Or in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 14, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is this Lord bringing us to the land only to fall by sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? That's catastrophic language. If we go forward, we're dead. We're, if we go forward in this plan, we're going to die. Not only that, future generations are in trouble. The kids and our wives will be taken as plunder. That is catastrophic language. When we're looking to the future and we're saying, there is no way for us to do this except for to move in this direction would result in devastation. That's language that unfortunately I hear a lot of Christians speaking like nowadays. We look at the cultural moment and we say, we can't imagine how it's going to get any better. It is worst case scenario right now. And if we move forward into this unknown reality, it is going to be troubling. That's language of unbelief. Now, Frankly, it's right if you're evaluating simply from a human perspective. If you're looking at the future and you're saying, what could we possibly do to affect a better future? We don't have it in us. That's a fair assessment. But here's the problem. It's lacking in the reality of God. If we look forward and we say, it's all bad, it's going to be devastating, and we can't do anything about this, that's true except for it is absent of the reality of God. Frankly, we don't know what God is going to do. When you look to the future and you think about what's coming down the pipe, you don't know how God is going to act. You don't know how he's going to be on the move in the midst of this season of life. The other night we were doing um, our bedtime routine, getting the kids ready for going to sleep and then, you know, trying to get them down early enough that they are well rested for school. And the night kind of got away from us. And so a lot of the things that we would normally do, we just said, look, we got to go to bed as soon as possible. And uh, we're not going to do some of those different things. And so Reese was still awake and she said, dad, can you tell me a bedtime story? 
And I was like, well, yeah, babe, I can certainly do that. She's like, can you tell me a Bible story? And I was just thinking through, okay, she's heard so many. Let me just do a, a different one, one that she hasn't heard or is unfamiliar with. And so I just kind of pulled something out of my uh, personal Bible reading for the week. I didn't think this one through. This is a pastor dad fail, okay? So I'm telling her this story, and it's from Isaiah. And it's the story of King Hezekiah. And the king of Assyria comes up to the, the, uh, to the area where Hezekiah is um, the king over his people, and they're in this city. And the king of Assyria comes up and says, we're going to come in and we're going to destroy everything. We're going we're gonna to knock down your walls. We're going to knock down your stuff. You have no chance. And the king of Assyria is saying to Hezekiah, and you might say your God will protect you, but what God has ever protected a people against me and my army? And so Hezekiah is freaking out and he goes to his buddy Isaiah and he says, here's what the king of Assyria is saying. They're going to bring their troops out and they're going to destroy our city and they're going to, they're going to destroy us. And Isaiah prays about it and he says, you don't need to worry about them. You don't need to worry about them. God's going to take care of it. And he's like, okay. And so the king of Assyria brings this huge army out and they're encamped outside of Hezekiah and his people and his city. And that night, the Lord, the Bible says the Lord strikes down 85,000 soldiers. And so the king of Assyria wakes up in the morning and he looks at it and he goes, my troops are gone. My army is gone. It's devastated. And so he goes back home. I'm telling Reese this story. He goes back home. And then the Bible says, when he goes in to worship his false god, his kids kill him. All right, sweetheart, good night. And she's like, what? Why? And like, why did and she had all kinds of questions? Then Ash was like, are you kidding me, Cor? Um, I was like, okay, let's, let's do a different story. So we did a different one. But here's, here's why I bring it up today. When you look at the future and you wonder, what is going to happen? When you're evaluating the circumstance right now and the cultural moment that we're going through and you look at, okay, what's coming down the pipe and how could this get any better? Most of us are kind of saying, we can't imagine it working out well for the church. Now, here's the problem with that. It is absent of God. That assessment is absent of God. We simply do not know what he's going to do. We are neglecting his power and his ability. If, if Hezekiah is looking out at that army, he's going, we, we have no chance here. Our, our walls can't stand against them. But here's the reality. God's on our side. Now, I don't know how that's going to play out, but if God says we're okay, we're okay. You see, catastrophic language reveals a posture of un unbelief in the heart. It's us saying, yeah, we believe in God, but functionally speaking, we're not sure. We're not sure he's going to do what he claims to do. So catastrophic language is one way to evaluate your heart. Here's a second way. How do you deal with people with whom you disagree? How do you deal with people who have a different opinion? Remember the two groups? Everyone, 12 scouts go in, they all see the same things. They look at the same exact stuff. The fruit of the land, the people who are living in it, the kind of cities that are there, the fortified cities there, and they come back and they have very different conclusions. Some of them are looking at those things and they're going, that's insurmountable. That's reckless. We don't go there because we will die. That land will devour those who are living in it. There are giants there. But Caleb and Joshua come back 
seeing the same exact things and they come to the exact opposite conclusion. The land is full of milk and honey, just like God said, we can go in. Why, why did that happen? Well, they're operating from two different worldviews. And here's, here's why this is so important. This cultural moment that we're going through right now, we're all seeing the same things. And when you bring up the topics of the moment, whether it be COVID-19 or racial inequality or political unrest or these sorts of things, we're all seeing the same stuff and people are coming to exact opposite conclusions. But what do you do with the people to whom you disagree? If you're an unbeliever, if you're operating in unbelief, you hate your opposition. Listen to what happens in Numbers chapter 14. Caleb says, if the Lord is pleased with us, we can go in. He will lead us into the land. And then he goes on to say, furthermore, they have no protection. We have God. But the rest of the community, verse 10, the whole assembly talked about stoning them. You think you can go in? You're wrong. We'll kill you. See, that's what happens when you are operating in unbelief. It starts to spill out in your hatred for those who are different from you. And you might be going, okay, Cor, that's a little extreme. Like, I'm not looking to kill anyone today. Uh, I certainly disagree with a bunch of people, but I'm not looking to kill anybody. But here's the problem. The Lord himself, Jesus, he connected hatred to murder in his Sermon on the Mount. And he said, when you hate people, that's the seed form of murder. When you hate people, you are acting in that direction in accord with the murderous intentions that lead people to literally kill each other. So how do you deal with people with whom you, you differ on opinions? Because if you're looking at them and you're hating them, I think that's indicating that something's going on in your heart. That's not, it's not how it's supposed to be. I'll show you what it should look like in just a moment. When, when there's disagreement and you are operating in faith, it, it manifests in love and compassion. And there's prayers that are offered for those who disagree. But, but here, I'm, I'm pointing out this reality. If there is hatred for other people, there's a, there's a problem. Now, this hatred can be spiritualized too. We can actually church it up. Let me show it to you in Luke 9. Um, we can hate people and we can say we are justified in doing that. And church history is littered with accounts of this, where you use your, your faith as a justifier for hating other people. But here's how it shows up in Luke 9. This is verses 53 and following. The people in that town that they were walking by did not welcome the Lord because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you, want us, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they look at the moment and they go, there are people who are not welcoming to us. Let's kill them. I mean, they're disrespectful to the Lord. Let's just off them. Let's call down fire from heaven. And the Lord had to rebuke them. You see, we can even, we can even spiritualize our hatred. And we can say we are justified and wanting those people gone. God does not like them either. And the Lord in this moment maybe wants to gently take us aside and rebuke us and say, that is not my heart. That is not my desire. This week, um, David and I went to a pastor's gathering and uh, talk about a discouraging meeting. Uh, we gathered with a bunch of local area pastors and 
we were just talking through this cultural moment and how leadership is going in this cultural moment and um, stories began to come out and, and uh, just the different things that the pastors are struggling with right now and leading congregations through what we're going through. And w- one of the guys that I, that I know well, quite well and respect uh, tremendously, he talked about a guy who, because of his COVID response, he, this guy from his church called him a Satanist, like hated him so much that he said, you're in league with Satan nowadays. And this pastor's like, are you kidding me? Like, you've known me, you've been in my home, you've been part of our church for forever. Is there anything that would lead you to believe that I am a worshiper of Satan? And the guy's like, no, I didn't expect this either. I didn't expect that you were a Satanist. He's like, well, (laughs) nothing more I can do here, right? If that's how you feel about me. See, there's a hatred that is willing to look at somebody else who differs in opinion and say, you, you don't even deserve to live. You're such a problem. You're in league with Satan. See, that's how this, this community was dealing with the believers. They were, when they said, we can go in, we should go in, they said, we'll stone you. Keep that up and we'll kill you. So when we're looking at our own hearts in this moment, I want you to just be honest. Like, are you, are you dealing with these different things? Are you, are you dealing with hatred of those to whom you disagree. Well, as the story goes on, unbelievers resist the work of God. They resist the work of God. First off, obviously, by rejecting God's plan. No, that's like, yes, God, I understand you're powerful, but if that's what you want us to do, we're not really interested in that. That's a rejection of God's plan. But then even furthermore, they respond inappropriately to the work of God. So as the story unfolds, Moses is praying for them that they would be forgiven. And God says, I will forgive them. Nonetheless, there are consequences to their actions. Here's what they are. Instead of going right into the land, they're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. And this whole generation is going to die off in the desert. They're not going to experience that rest. And when they hear that, they say, okay, we're sorry. We didn't understand the, you know, how, how significant this was to God. So we'll change we'll go today. We'll fight today. They take matters into their own hands. It's, a, it's, it's false repentance. It's when you're looking at God and he's reminding you of his gracious invitation and you're rejecting it. And then you're realizing, oh, oh, this is what God means by that. I'll change that for him. And you're doing it in your own strength and resources. So verse 40, the next morning, They set out for the highest point in the hill country saying, now we're ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we've sinned. They're acknowledging we we messed up here. And even still, they're not actually repenting. They are performing their own righteousness. This This is what we do. And I just want you to be aware of it. A lot of Christians, when we recognize that we've sinned, we take matters into our own hands. We don't entrust ourselves to the Lord. We don't, we don't cast ourselves on the throne of God's grace, we say, yes, we screwed up. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go ahead and work really hard at making this right. I'm going to fix it. And that actually is a form of self-righteousness. It is us trying to deal with something we're not equipped to deal with. Instead, we need to come to the Lord and receive from him all that he is willing to give to us. So they go and they suffer catastrophe. Now, this story the Bible holds out as a warning for you and I. Over and over again, the Bible 
references the experience of the Israelites in the desert wilderness. And it says, look at what happened to them and be very careful. Psalm 95 is a good example of this. It highlights the, the story and it tells us some of the details of it, but it's saying, do not be like that generation that fell in the desert wilderness. In the book of Hebrews, the same thing is picked up in Hebrews chapter three. It retells the story of the generation that falls in the desert wilderness and it makes this important application. Here it is. We'll put it up on the screens. Hebrews 3 verses 12 and 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It's saying, be very careful. Make certain that you do not have this sinful, unbelieving heart that is rejecting the way of the living God. And then gather people around you who can keep you accountable and can help you and encourage you along the way daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We look at this story and we need to hear that warning today. This is me. I have it within me to reject the things of God. I can functionally operate as an unbeliever. I can harden my heart to the things of God. I can look at what God is doing and I can say, I'm not interested in that. That's too hard. That's too challenging. That's too much. And this is a warning for us to examine our hearts to be certain that we do not have a sinful, unbelieving heart turning away from the living God. Well, the second thing that we find here is this contrasting way. It's the way of faith. We see the way of faith on display first off in Caleb. And you see it in the way we describe it around here is gospel confidence. Um, Caleb has this ability to look at the moment and to have tremendous confidence that God is good and that things are going to go well. It's, it's almost absurd, but he's looking at it through the lens of faith. And so what he sees, same things, giants, fortified cities, uh, you know, the, a beautiful land, but, but fraught with all kinds of danger. He sees the same stuff, but he goes, and God is taking us there. That place is awesome, and God will lead us in. And he has then gospel confidence. Look at verses 8 and 9 of Numbers 14. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. There's irony. They're saying this land devours those living in it. And Caleb says, we'll devour them. And he goes on to say, their protection is gone. Yeah, they've got fortified cities with giant walls, but the Lord, the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So he has gospel confidence. He, what, what, what gospel confidence looks like is we're evaluating the world that we're living in and we're very aware of the dangers we're very aware of the obstacles. We're very aware of all the challenges. And nonetheless, we come to the conclusion, God is good. God is for us. It's going to be okay. That's gospel confidence. And, and, and that's what I want all of us to have, to be able to look at this moment and say, God is good and he is for us. And the church is going to be just fine. The Lord, the Lord is building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Now, you might be thinking, well, Cor, this is an exceptional example from the Old Testament. 
are you sure that all Christians should feel this way? And my answer is yes. This week I was looking at the New Testament again with those eyes and I was just wondering, is this true in every generation of believers? Should believers always have gospel confidence no matter what's going on? And my answer when I looked at the New Testament again with that question in front of it, my answer again was yes. The New Testament agrees with what Caleb assesses way back in Numbers. So think, think with me about this. The New Testament was written during the time of the empire of Rome. So there was this political reality that was anti-Christian. And in fact, Paul and Peter and others would die at the hands of Rome. And, and persecution was widespread. If you were a follower of God, it meant that, it meant that people hated you. And, and not just in, in theory, but in practice, they wanted you dead. They would steal your stuff or they would uh, injure your reputation or they would physically harm you. Persecution was widespread. There was a cultural divide between what Christians professed and what was normal in culture. So they didn't have societies that just kind of encouraged godliness and righteousness and following the ways of, of God. Instead, there was this, this divide between what Christians were saying and what the world was promoting. They were living in a very hostile environment. And nonetheless, what is the vibe of the New Testament? What do you find in the New Testament? Do you find the, the authors, the, the followers of God saying, this is, this is big time, this is trouble, I don't know how we're going to navigate this, this is just daunting for us? No. In fact, you almost don't hear a lot about those political realities. Barclay points out that, and not everyone agrees with them, but it's one of my favorite hot takes on politics. Paul barely even mentions politics. He gives like a couple, chap a couple paragraphs in different places. But the main thing that he does is he promotes the kingdom of God. So the tone of the New Testament is surprisingly one of joy and confidence in God. It's looking at, in, in the face of all of these challenges and difficulties, it's able to say, we are following God. There is no challenge too hard for us. Let me give you one sample. It's from Romans 8. The whole chapter is worth your consideration. Uh, the argument goes something like this. If God is willing to give us his son, if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will he not also along with that son graciously give us all things? And he comes to this conclusion, conclusion Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced, this is Paul writing, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the world. Look at all the awful stuff you can find. There is nothing out there that can pre prevent what God is doing with us. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's, that's where gospel confidence comes from. It's believing in the promises of God, even in the face of a broken and hostile world. That's what faith looks like. The way of faith is the way of gospel confidence, and it's the way of resilience. So Caleb was willing to be in the minority, and he was willing to experience open hostility, and he was willing to persist in that faith for his entire lifetime. 
That's what we're talking about. We want to be the kind of people who are walking in the way of faith. One of my favorite authors, uh, well, Puritan authors, is a pastor by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. And he lived hundreds of years ago, but he lived in Europe during a time of political hostility toward true Christianity. And he was a pastor, and because of his commitment to the Bible and to the way of Christ, uh, he was he, he, had to, he had to run for his life. He lost his position as pastor and people were out to get him. So he had to flee to Holland and he spent a season there um, just waiting as things were unfolding. And then God called him back to Europe, uh, back to uh, London to, to do ministry again. And he began preaching some sermons that became a book. And this is an excellent title of a Puritan book, a good example of one at least. And it's called The Excellency of Holy Courage in Evil Times. And what he was preaching on, as I understand it, what he was encouraging believers to do was to have gospel confidence. Yes, politically speaking, this is a hostile cultural moment. If you're faithful, you might die for that. But he's saying, in light of that, even still, have holy courage in these evil times. There's kind of a theme running throughout our service today about what God wants us to do. Step away from the chaos and the noise and the concern about all the things going on in the world and enter into his rest. God is not fretting right now. He's not wondering how this is going to play out. He's inviting us into gospel peace. Be people of faith who have gospel confidence and resilience. Well, finally, we have this Incredible thing that happens with Moses here. He really acts a lot like Christ in this moment. So Moses, as the, the leader of the people, has an opportunity here to interface with God. And what he does is quite interesting. God is provoked to anger. He's saying, these people are treating me with contempt. Step aside, Moses. We're going to start over with you. I'm going to destroy all these people. And here's what Moses does. He behaves an awful lot like Christ. They fall down, verse 5. Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. It's, it's this posture of prayer. They're recognizing the severity of the moment. They're falling before the assembly and they begin to pray for God. God says, Moses, I'll start over with you. And Moses essentially says, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to be this new nation. I don't want to be at the head of this new nation. I want you to love this people. I want you to forgive this people. He's praying for the good of those who are rejecting the way of God. He's praying for God's glory. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, look, if, if you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who've heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. In other words, he's saying what they will conclude wrongly is that you weren't able to save them. And they, they will not understand that it's on account of the sinfulness of the people that they fell in the wilderness. They, they will attribute it instead to your inability to save. Instead, Lord, would you please rescue this people from themselves? He prays that the Lord's strength would be on display. Look at verse 17. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you've declared. Now what he's, what he's getting at is this incredible reality. Show how powerful you truly are and here's what will make people bow down and worship you. 
that you can save them. That your strength is able to deal with a rebellious people in a gracious way. In fact, that same word strength is used in Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. It, it reads like this. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He is strong in forbearance. Lord, show people how strong you truly are. That you can take a rebellious people and you can save them. You can forgive them. He goes on to make this appeal on the basis of God's own character. Numbers 14 verse 18 is actually citing Exodus 34. If you've been around me for any amount of time, you understand that. Exodus 34 is one of the most important passages in all of scripture because it's where God tells us what God is like. It says, here's who I am. You want to understand me? Here's who I am. So Moses uses that and he says, Lord, forgive this people. And, and here's why. Because that's the kind of God you are. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. But then if you're looking at Exodus 34, it goes on to talk about his mercy. And mathematically, his mercy abounds. He punishes to the third and fourth generation, but his grace extends to thousands. And so Moses is saying, forgive this people. And here's why I'm making this bold request, because that's the kind of God that you are. In fact, we find out about the awesome mercy and grace of the Lord from the Old Testament. Dane Ortland in that book that David mentioned a moment ago, Gentle and Lowly, commenting on this reality, says, God doesn't have his finger on the trigger. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his ire. Not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. No, no, no. His anger requires provocation. His love, on the other hand, is pent up. It is ready to gush forth. God is saying, here's who I am. I am the kind of God who is gracious and merciful to the undeserving. And Moses is saying, God, deal with this people on the basis of that. Deal with this people, not because they deserve your salvation, but because that's just the kind of God that you are. At the very core of who you are, you are a gracious and forgiving God. Yes, you punish sin to the third and fourth generation, but your grace and mercy super abound. You pour that out lavishly. That is the very heart of God, and that is the heart of Christ. And so Moses makes that appeal, verse 19, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And here's what God says. You got it, dude. That's what I do. I take a people who are undeserving, who are rebellious, who are wicked, and I deal with them in love and compassion. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Now, obviously, you can continue to read and you can see the catastrophe of their choices. You can see that there, there are consequences to rebellion. But I want you to note here, the heart of God is the heart of mercy and compassion. It's how it has always been. He is the kind of God who looks at me. I'm, I'm a functional unbeliever. I look at God's call and I say, I can't do that. We can't do that. There's no way. That's too hard, God. And he says, look, I will provide for you. And that unbelief that you're experiencing, I will pardon that. He looks at us. This is, this is the way of salvation. This is what Jesus has come to do. God has come to forgive us just as we ask. 
He has come to make a way for us to be right with God. And it is not because we're so awesome or we're so great or we're so worthy. He looks at natural born enemies who reject him and resist him and push him away and keep him at arm's length. And he looks at us and he says, I love you so much. I will die for you. I will forgive. I will pardon. I will make a way for you to enter into my rest. So church family, as we look at this, we see the way of faith. And like the writer to Hebrews says, God is extending this rest. May we please enter into it in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would search our hearts. This is a moment where we, we want to be certain that we are walking by faith in our Lord and Savior. And it is all too easy to be overwhelmed and discouraged and uncertain Lord, would you please grant us gospel confidence? Would you help us to see that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ? And would we then live that out? Could we please be joyful people, Lord? Even when things are hard, even when things seem impossible, but we are believing that you are good and you're for us and you will make a way. And Lord, we thank you most of all for our salvation. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for his enemies that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Thank you that he is redeeming us and making us right. Lord, help us to be your faithful people. Amen. Amen.